A fellow named Dan Millman, are we a little loud here? Yeah. I know, it's one of those warnings, it's all right. A fellow named Dan Millman was a world-class gymnast who became a well-known author and lecturer in spirituality and human potential. Some of you may have heard of his best-known book, Way of the Peaceful Warrior. Uh, in a later book, The Inner Athlete, Millman shares a fanciful story about practicing non-judgment. I've adapted it some. While golfing, Sam sliced his tee shot way over a row of trees and a high fence bordering the course. That ball long gone, Sam teed up again and continued with his game. As he putted out on the final hole, a police officer and a fire captain approached, quite upset. The police officer spoke. Did you hit a ball over the fence on the 12th fairway? I did, replied Sam. Well, it went through the windshield of a car, causing it to crash into a tree and block the road. No one was hurt, but, said the police officer, but the property loss is in the millions. What are you going to do about it? Sam took this in with concern and then replied, you know, I think I'll have to shift my stance a little to the left. <laughs> a little to the left. Now let's imagine the rest of the story. What did Sam do? He's an upstanding guy, so he takes care of things, works with the golf course ownership on the insurance settlement, the apartment owner and the residents were compensated. And more importantly for today's topic, what didn't he do? Well, Sam did not take out his nine iron and mercilessly club himself for making a simple human mistake. Imagine him eternally wandering around the golf course like some cursed figure from Greek mythology. Whack, you pea brain, whack, you thoughtless twit, whack, whack, that'll teach me. You're laughing because it sounds silly, yes? Yet if we think about it, how many times, in some way, shape, or form, do we judge and whack ourselves when we make a mistake? Or judge and whack someone else when they do? These whacks might be obvious and intense at times, or they may be extremely subtle. Either way, if judgments spring up and we, A, don't know, don't, or first don't fully realize we're even judging because it's so habitual, and or B, don't know what to do with our judgments once we do notice them, they have us. We are not free in mind, or spirit. So while it's important to have high moral standards, it's just as vital to apply these delicately. Otherwise, judgment becomes a shield, blocking us from receiving even gentle feedback because we're already judging ourselves so harshly that we can't take in anymore. Or it becomes a sword, where we project that hypervigilance onto others and become critical. And wielding such heavy judgments creates a psychological and spiritual prison, one that cuts us off from other people and from the vitality of being our authentic selves for fear of making mistakes, from pleasure and contentment and joy. Dan Millman sums all this up when he writes, judgments block energy, set up internal defenses and resistance, that tend to hold negative patterns in place. Releasing judgments 
opens the way for change. Now, that said, we run smack into a paradox because a big first step on this path to freedom is to understand and admit to ourselves that human beings are going to judge things. Our whole lives, in fact, we are required to make distinctions and determinations and to practice discernment. I'd like this and not that. I'm going to do this and not that. This seems safe and that doesn't. I think this is right and that is wrong. And elders urge younger folks to use good judgment. We can't escape it. And sometimes the instinctive snap judgments our prime, uh, primal brain makes do serve a survival purpose. But here's the thing. We have to make judgments. We don't have to be judgmental. For example, some time ago, I'm driving about 40 miles an hour on a, connect, a commercial street. Coming to an intersection, I have a green light. When a car turns right on red into my lane, I had to hit my brakes hard to avoid rear-ending it. I saw it happening and I said, ah, oh, come on, or something like that, use your imagination. <laughs> and I flashed my high beams to indicate that wasn't a safe choice on their part. For maybe two blocks, I felt a mild agitation in my body until I turned into the grocery store parking lot, and then it was gone. Let's look at this in the light of judging versus being judgmental. First, on the most basic level, I judged that what the other driver did was unsafe and reacted accordingly by hitting my brakes. I allowed my body to move the spontaneous energy of annoyance by uttering some mild words. <laughs> but I didn't fly into an indignant rage or lay on the horn because they had wronged me. But I did ask them to notice their mistake by flashing my high beams. Nor did I evade my body's normal reactions and go into what's called spiritual bypassing, which is when you suppress or deny an emotion or physical reaction in the name of some spiritual ideal. An extreme example would be someone saying, that's all right, I forgive you, when in fact they're still seething with resentment or overcome with grief. Spiritual bypassing. I noticed that for a couple of blocks, my body felt mildly restless, and I recognized that when something like this happens, our bodies release chemicals that help us react, which then take time to dissipate. But I didn't mentally attach judgment to this inconvenience and thus fuel it, so that by the time I park at the store, I screech into a parking place, slam my car door, and mutter on my way in how the whole human race is nothing but a bunch of selfish idiots. If I had done that, in wielding my sword of self-righteous judgment, would I affect any positive change in any of those idiots? I mean, people? <laughs> no. And who is in a psychological prison? Moi. Instead, by the time I parked, it was over, which allowed me to be free to enjoy shopping. Now, I don't share this to hold myself up as some enlightened paragon of virtue. I'm not. In fact, I bought some extra eggs to keep in the car for the next time someone cuts me off. <laughs> Which reminds me of an elderly woman who lived alone and wished her local grocery store carried some eggs by the half dozen since she only ate them on occasion. Then one day she called her daughter and spoke excitedly. Guess what? The store finally sells half dozen egg cartons. I was so happy I bought two. 
So yes, judgment has its place. And as we start edging toward the holiday season of peace on earth, goodwill toward all, I suggest that learning to practice the difference between judgment as discerning and honoring our own needs and preferences versus being harshly judgmental of others and or ourselves is one of the most peace-producing things people can do for each other. Jesus is said to have shared this same sentiment in his Sermon on the Mount from the biblical book of Matthew, where in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, he reportedly said, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And he offers this caution because as an enlightened spiritual master, he knows that being judgmental is so toxic. That's a good segue from what's been mostly a psychological perspective to a more spiritual take on how we can better lay down our swords and shields, which brings us to our earlier reading from Rumi, This We Have Now. I know it went by quickly, and I'll share it again and comment quickly on each of the three stanzas. This we have now is not imagination. This is not grief or joy, not a judging state or an elation or sadness. Those come and go. This is the presence that doesn't. The mystical arm of Islam is called Sufism, and this stanza of his poem describes the enlightened state of consciousness experienced by his 13th century Sufi community after a night of meditating, trance dancing, and sacred poetry. And he's saying that this heightened reality that transcends passing grief or joy, elation or sadness, is not imaginary, but is what we experience when we come into deep contact with sacred presence, capital P. It's beyond all our normal judgments, and it melts our judgments of others. And at sunrise, its magic is still with them. It's dawn who saw him here in the splendor of coral, inside the friend, the simple truth of what Halaj said. What else could human beings want? When grapes turn into wine, they're wanting this. When the night sky pours by, it's really a crowd of beggars, and they're all wanting some of this. Hussam was Rumi's scribe for several decades, and here Rumi addresses him to emphasize how in their awakened state, this dawn is intensely special. He then refers to being in the splendor of coral, meaning in the beauty of a profound connection with sacred reality, because they are inside the friend, capital F. Some religious traditions imagine the divine, or what some call God, as a judgmental parent who demands strict adherence to impossible standards and delivers penalties and retribution when they're not met. For some groups, God's judgment even includes an apocalyptic final judgment, a.k.a. Judgment Day. But in radical contrast, for Rumi and other enlightened souls, the divine is the beloved friend. And when he connects this to the simple truth of what Halaj said, he's referring to Mansur al-Halaj, a Sufi mystic who was born around the year 18, or sorry, 858, Halaj referred to God as his beloved and his friend, and often said, 
Ana al-Haq, I am the truth. This teaching was considered heretical and blasphemous and got him imprisoned for 10 years and finally executed. But Halaj's teachings and martyrdom were kept alive in Sufi circles and Rumi knew of this. And for him the phrase, I am the truth, becomes a self-evident truth. That when one enters an awakened state of consciousness and unites with the sacred, there is no distinction between self and that divinity. And Rumi's ecstatic reaction is understandable. What else could human beings want? When grapes turn into wine, they're wanting some of this. When the night sky pours by, it's really a crowd of beggars, and they all want some of this, some of that divine connection. He's saying that nothing compares to this divine connection, so much so that it's the ultimate aim not only of humans but of all creation, even the distant stars. Finally, Rumi claims that this spiritual energy is the source of all things, capital S. The human body and the universe grew from this, not this from the universe and the human body. That is, humans didn't evolve from base matter and make up our conceptions of divinity. Rather, divinity or spirit or universal consciousness is the primary reality, and we and all life are the physical uh, manifestations of that energy. Which brings us back around to his initial statement. This we have now is not imagination. This is not grief or joy, not a judging state or an elation or sadness. Those come and go. This is the presence that doesn't. Rumi is saying that the love of this present or spirit is not imaginary and that it does not judge us. Later, classical Unitarian Universalist theology affirms that indeed spirit does not judge and punish us, but holds each soul in universal love, that is, in universal salvation. So knowing this, why would we judge and whack ourselves? Dan Millman puts this perspective plainly. What would it be like to model Sam the golfer and see ourselves and life without having to compare or criticize, or blame, or judge ourselves, and I'll add others. He continues, what would it be like to live as best we can, accept our mistakes, learn from them, and do a little better next time? What if we completely accepted ourselves and others? Unquote. In today's opening song, we sang, gonna lay down my sword and shield, this applies to external circumstances, specifically ceasing war-making, but there's also an internal aspect. For the more we awaken, the less we need to cut others or ourselves down with a sword or defensively shield ourselves from criticism and hence from fully engaging with life. And in the third verse of our second song, Grieve Not Your Heart, we sang, Be fair to people when they err, when good your pleasures show. Their faults be quick to understand, in judging them, be slow. And as we've seen, this applies to ourselves too. So in closing, take a moment now and bring to mind an instance, either recent or persisting from longer ago, when you judged yourself or someone else. Take a moment. 
find a spot in your mind where you judged yourself or someone else. When you grabbed your nine iron, that is your sword and your shield, and gave at least one good whack to yourself or that other person. Now reflect on the effect of this. Did it really bring you greater peace, self-worth, or happiness? If you whacked another, did your judgment do anything to change what you found distasteful? Or did it just distance you from them by diminishing their humanity in your eyes and heart? Many days I experienced the type of challenge Ed described in his reflection. And until we fully awaken spiritually and, like Rumi, live inside the friend, we will have visceral reactions to perceived affronts. But as in my car driving example, we don't need to reflexively act on these. Instead, we learn to notice, discern, acknowledge, and release. And when we do choose to express concerns to someone else, we do so with utmost care and respect. This does not mean we don't practice moral discernment and work for justice. It means we do this without vilifying anyone else. And as we practice this in the world, it's helpful to really get in our bones the Dalai Lama's simple but profound words on this topic. Love is the absence of judgment. Love is the absence of judgment. It's that simple and that difficult. So when a challenge arises in our lives that tempts us to judge, let's remember to lay down our swords and our shields and instead shift our stance a little to the left <laughs> and a lot toward higher love. Namaste, blessed be, and amen.